Before we begin our main event, a brief reminder that Historically Thinking is now on Patreon. When you become a member of the Historically Thinking Common Room on Patreon, you not only support the podcast's weekly operations, from web hosting to scheduling to audio editing, you also enable us to do more in the future. Benefits that you'll receive as a Common Room member include a special weekly podcast, podcasts dropped in advance when possible, special events online and in the future live, input on topics, guests, and questions, competitions and prizes, and more. We will continue to produce our regular podcasts, which will still be available for free on Mondays in all your regular podcast feeds. We hope you'll enjoy being part of the Historically Thinking Common Room at Patreon. Just go to Patreon and search for Historically Thinking. Welcome to Historically Thinking, a podcast that's not only about the past and all its complexity, but also about how historians write history and how everyone can think about it. For more information about this or any episode, go to historicallythinking.org, where you can also sign up for our twice-a-month newsletter. Hello, you might as well admit it. You've always wondered how you would do in a vicious struggle for power. Your thoughts might be prompted by an overlong project planning meeting for a new software product, a C-suite argument over working from home, an angry meeting of a humanities department with an associate dean, or just from binge-watching Game of Thrones one too many times. But if you were a high-ranking official in an authoritarian regime, such thoughts would simply be part of thinking ahead. In his new book, Prestige, Manipulation, and Coercion, Elite Power Struggles in the Soviet Union and China After Stalin and Mao, Joseph Turijin analyzes four power struggles in Leninist regimes, arguing that party institutions did not prevent power struggles from being shaped by the politics of personal prestige, historical antagonisms, backhanded political maneuvering, and violence. While I hasten to add that it's not a how-to book, if he's right, then we might even be able to learn something about the future from studying the past. Joseph Trigian is an assistant professor at the School of International Service at American University and a global fellow at the Woodrow Wilson Center's History and Public Policy Program. Joseph Trigian, welcome to Historically Thinking. Thanks so much for having me. So there's a little bit. Uh, people say, hey, what's this? This sounds like a, a political a political science book on a historical thinking program. And boy, you're not wrong. There's like hypothesis 1A and hypothesis 1B and stuff like that that I don't usually get to read. But there's a historical argument here. Uh, so what are the first, let's set the broad horizon. What are the incidents in which you examine in the course of the book and why? So I look at four different cases of power struggles in the Soviet Union and China after the deaths of Stalin and Mao. The Soviet cases are the arrest and execution of Lafrenti Beria, the head of the political police in 1953, and then the purge of the so-called anti-party clique in 1957, when a majority of the Presidium, which is what the Politburo was called then, tried to remove Khrushchev because of a view that he was infringing upon collective leadership. And then for the China cases, one is the purge of the so-called Gang of Four in 1976. And then the final case is the removal of Hua Guofeng from power, which was a little bit different from the other cases because it took less the form of an arrest or uh, or very brief power struggle, but the slow moving uh, of him out from his position as Mao's initial successor by Deng Xiaoping. Now, uh, last year, almost a year ago, I talked with Tony Sage about his history of the Communist Party. I think I said then that it's extremely boring in some ways, in many ways, because it's a hundred years of committee meetings punctuated by purges. So there's like, it's like boredom punctuated by terror. Um, and there are aspects you've picked the purges to study, which makes it a much more like terrifying book in some ways, but there's still a lot of committee meetings. It's amazing how many boring committee meetings, minutes you, you've had to wade through. I, I stand in all of your iron pants. Yeah, there's this expression in China studies called eating the sawdust. And what it means essentially <laughs> is that you need to eat an extraordinarily number of documents and other materials to really get any protein. And I would say that probably 99% of my professional life is, is reading stuff that ultimately I don't use uh, or that doesn't matter. But I got to tell you that when you do something like that, when something leaps off the page and it's a new find and it's really meaningful and it changes how you think either about the cases you're looking at or more broadly, how we think about politics in these types of systems, it's, it's really, really exciting. So I can remember many times either in the Russian archives or 
uh, looking at uh, these Chinese sources that have sort of fallen off the back of a truck and appeared in American libraries. I have to get up from my seat and walk around in circles, especially because I just spent the last two days, you know, going through stuff that ended up not being interesting. But you also mentioned something, at, you know, at the beginning, which I, I was laughing about. And the reason for that was uh, I'm on this committee, uh, service committee at the School of International Service. Uh, and I told them that my book had come out and that it was about power struggles and, you know, Leninist <laughs> regimes. And they joked and they said, well, we really ought to be careful around you because uh, you really know how to do this kind of thing. And right before that, one of them had just noticed the sort of contradiction in the bylaws. And I said, no, it's a completely different game because here you are really caring about the rules and noticing uh, when the rules don't make sense. And in Leninist systems, they use that ambiguity precisely as a weapon um, to hurt other people and uh, try to disregard these, you know, these institutions as much as they can so that they don't feel constrained by them. So I said, no, it's actually quite different experience. So I'm not exactly how sure this uh, use of this book is specifically for, you know, service uh, committee meetings. At, service at, committee. At, uh, well, wait, wait, till, yeah. wait till you get on the most important university committee of all, the parking committee. Mm -hmm. I believe that. Yeah. yeah. So let's talk about the death of Stalin. And then the the purging and the execution of Laurenti Beria. Could you just describe what happens in between when Stalin's sort of nearly lifeless body is, you know, found, and up to the moment then where someone will talk about who decides to get rid of Beria? So shortly before Stalin's death, he had rearranged the top leadership and essentially pushed out most of the old revolutionaries and uh, comrades of, of Lenin and had empowered two groups, a sort of middle generation that included people like Beria, uh, Malenkov, uh, and Khrushchev, and then a younger set, which would be the age of uh, Brezhnev. And you know, of course, that generation would come to the fore in, 19, in 1964. But as soon as Stalin dies, there is a very quick restructuring and the old leaders return into the uh, power center. The middle generation basically takes the leading positions and the younger generation is completely pushed out. And so I, I should just say this is the, the feeling then amongst the older generation was that they were for the this is going to be the second great purge. Right. This is correct. This so is every, the, this people is, expected that terror. Correct. So there was a sense that if Stalin hadn't died, then those old revolutionaries would have not survived for very much longer. And so this is what makes it so interesting in comparison with the China case, which was that in China, uh, after Mao's death, the old revolutionaries came to the fore once again uh, and became the top leaders and pushed out all of these middle or younger people that had been promoted during the Cultural Revolution by Mao. And we saw in the years after Stalin's death that the old revolutionaries had expected that these party seniority as a reflection of your contributions to the revolution and to the early years of the regime would be reflected in, in authority relations, but essentially that wasn't what happened. And so with Beria, what you had here was this sort of middle generation leader. He was seen as a sort of upstart by figures like Molotov and uh, Voroshilov and Kaganovich. Uh, but he was distrusted by everyone because he had something which I show in the book is really sort of the coin of the realm, these types of power struggles, which is compromising material. So you see not so much these policy differences uh, driving the contest after Stalin's death, but who had dirt on whom and how people thought about legacies and, and what that meant for who deserved to be in what leading position. A couple things. It's part of the legend of Beria. First, he's Georgian, like Stalin. Um, does that lead to his, is, is, has that, was that overemphasized by his opponents? Um, or was that actually part of a, sort of a Russian dis distrust of this guy from the periphery? Well, what's interesting about Beria is that he doesn't seem to have wanted to pursue the formal leadership of the party, but wanted instead to have been sort of a kingmaker or a power behind the throne, something like that. But what's also really striking about Beria is just how much he reached out to other people in the leadership and tried to do nice things for them, either by rehabilitating Molotov's wife, rehabilitating Kaganovich's uh, dead brother, um, offering them perks, uh, being very attentive to them, which very counterintuitively from a sort of political science perspective, which you would think you could co-opt people by doing that, actually made other people in the elite afraid of him, believing that he was winning political capital precisely because he was so popular. 
which uh, sort of counterintuitively uh, was one of the contributing factors to their move against him. So we should explain, uh, he, so he's head of the MVD. Uh, what is the MVD at that time? So the political police was seen as a danger precisely because of what it had done during the Stalin's, Stalinist era. And we see during Central Committee plenums over the course of the 1950s that there was a sense in the immediate months after uh, Stalin's death that nobody was sure, quote unquote, who was listening to whom. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't seem that Beria was intending actually to collect dirt on people and, and use it on them. But because it had been used in that way in the past, and also because Beria would have been able to use it as a source of information, even on policy debates uh, as well, uh, but also precisely because institutions were so weak that it wasn't clear whether or not Beria would have been able to use the political police in a sort of operational sense uh, and arrest people. And so we did see a fear that if the party used uh, methods like confronting Beria at a central committee plenum or a, uh, or a presidium meeting, that he would essentially say that you know these deliberations are illegitimate, call in the political police and arrest the people that were going after him, which is, which is essentially why it was necessary at the presidium meeting where Beria was arrested to literally bring in these generals uh, to, uh, to, to arrest Beria uh, and confine him. But what I want to get at is, is that Beria, I mean, as important as the keeping files on all the members of the regime is, and as important as that is for Beria's sort of power base, Beria controls far more even than that, right? I mean, he's in charge of the entire, he's in charge of the entire gulag system, uh, which is, which is not merely a prison camp. It's a major part of the economy of the Soviet economy, right? What else is he in charge of? What else does he have control over? Well, what also was important was his role in the nuclear program. And I think that was, that was crucial for two reasons. One is, as I argue throughout the book, People are very, very, very jealous about how their contributions to the cause are seen because their lives are encapsulated by their lives by by themselves as party members, right? And also this idea that your authority within the party should be reflective based on your contributions. So the fact that Beria had run the nuclear program and run it so successfully was an extraordinary source of political capital for him. And it made him also threatening to other people within the elite because of the popularity that he had accrued from that. But also, as I've been, as I've been saying, because Leninist institutions are so weak, it allows for the possibility for organizations like the military and the political police to play a role. And there was a sense that Beria had such a close control over the nuclear program and was doing things that the rest of the elite didn't know about that was concerning to them. And David Holloway, who's written a book about the uh, nuclear program, was told during interviews in Moscow that there was a fear that Beria would use his special control uh, over the nuclear weapons forces in any kind of power struggle, including a coup. So he had not just control over research and production, but actually over the nuclear weapons forces themselves that were going to deploy so the he weapons? was a so at that time uh, the nuclear weapons in the Soviet Union weren't especially advanced in terms of operationalization, but it's definitely clear that Beria was making decisions on testing that might have not been approved by the full elite, even though that was seen as such an extraordinary. Uh, extraordinarily sensitive um, uh, area. And what's also interesting too is that uh, before Stalin's death, Stalin very, very, very jealously irrigated control over the nuclear program. So there was not a lot of understanding uh, among the rest of the elite about what these weapons actually could do and what they were all about. And so there's very interesting material about how people like Khrushchev and Malenkov after Stalin's death slowly came to understand uh, what these weapons were. So I think that all of those reasons contribute to a concern that, that Beria had a uh, an overly personalized relationship with these uh, extremely sensitive bailiwicks. This is around the time I'm, I'm certain of dates. This to further enhance this sound dies in, died in '53. This is around the time of the Soviet test of their a hydrogen bomb. All right, I mean this is they had gotten the atomic bomb around what 48, 49, and this is now they've either tested or are about to test the hydrogen, the the, re, the really the big one. 
Correct, correct. So this, so the weapons, the nuclear weapons program was moving around quite quickly at that time. And in fact, it was the test of the hydrogen bomb um, that that came up in the Central Committee plenums as something that uh, um, was something Barrio was keeping such con- close control over that other people weren't having a good handle on. Okay. And further, it's not just the secret police. It's not just the nuclear weapons program. It's not just the Gulag. He also controls, and you just touched, you mentioned it in passing. He controls internal, actual internal security troops. Uh, the guys who guard the Kremlin and the division that essentially is parked on Moscow in order to keep it safe. Correct. And this was very concerning for other members of the leadership. And we see that during discussions, uh, Beria um, was not even allowed to present his case at a show trial uh, or a central committee plenum, which was even sort of uh, worse than what had happened during the 1930s during the Great Trial Room. And some of them were actually, you know, uh, very famously televised, which led people outside of the Soviet Union to be somewhat convinced that maybe they had actually been um, opposing uh, the top leadership. But the, uh, so the situation uh, with with Barrio was such that they, they felt that um, if, you know, they had confronted him, in a way that would allow him to rally the political police, it might have gone a little bit differently. Also, because they didn't really have a lot of to go on, right, mm-hmm. uh, in terms of what they were going to accuse him with. So he wasn't actually technically arrested, but detained. And then once he was uh, separated from the political police, then they dug up the material that they could use so they could confront um, the Central Committee plenum uh, with with evidence that you know they had they had basically. Um, put together um, in the interim. But if Barry had been allowed to, you know, address the Central Committee uh, and explain to the extent to which his um, detractors really didn't have a lot of, you know, concrete evidence to um, to accuse him with, uh, it would have been a lot more dangerous for, for the coup plotters to, uh, to come out the way that they did. So let's get to the moment of his arrest. His arrest comes as a shock to him. This is, I guess, one way in which the death of Stalin it's this hilarious dark comedy of Armando Iannucci. Um, that's one way in which it's cor- uh, that is one of the only ways in which it seems to be correct, you know, or, or resembles history. He is stunned when this happens to him, despite his knowledge of everything that's going on. Supposedly, he can't believe it. Well, what's interesting is he's not the only one who can't believe it. <laughs> and there were other people at the presidium meeting who thought that a military coup was happening when these when these generals walked in. And what's also very interesting is it's not clear just how many members of the presidium knew that that was what was going to happen to Beria, uh, or uh, had, were on the same page in terms of if Beria was going to be punished, that it was going to be that is going to happen like that, right? So who do you think, who do you think then, what's your best guess? This has been, this is part of one of the great Cold War mysteries. I, I can remember even in like the late 80s, what really happened to Beria? So who do you think really uh, decided to get rid of Beria? Who was the, who was the core group? You know, it's interesting, the extent to which memoir materials still differ on very fundamental questions, and we don't have the, uh, um, the transcript of the presidium meeting where Beria was arrested. We, the closest thing that we have are the rough notes of the speech um, that Malenkov uh, gave at the beginning. Uh, but it does seem, looking at the evidence, that Khrushchev was really the one uh, who was in, was in the driver's seat. And what's so interesting about that is, if you look at the lineup of the leadership after Stalin's death, it doesn't look like Khrushchev would have ended up as the number one leader. In fact, he would have probably been seen as one of the less likely people. So the fact that he was the one to do that, uh, I, I think is uh, sort of is revealing about um, Khrushchev as an individual uh, and his political cunning and his ambition. And, um, uh, you know, one of the reasons I think Beria was so surprised in which Khrushchev had trouble explaining was that in the months after Stalin's death, there was a sort of triumvirate, right, of Khrushchev, mm-hmm. 
Kharkov and Beria. So we see Khrushchev at the Central Committee plenum um, after Beria's arrest, where it's explained to the party why this happened to be the case. Khrushchev sort of awkwardly addresses, you know, this view that he and, and Malenkov and Beria had been had been running the show and had been very close. And he says, well, actually, the reason we were so close was because Beria uh, was trying to uh, win me over, but he was trying to win me over because he was a bad person, right? So this mm-hmm. kind of... Um, As they awkward do. maneuvering there. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. So let's get to the standard received view, the standard received wisdom. Uh, this would be what hypothesis one a. Um, how would how do a political scientist how would what's the theory say about what happened? So if you look at the literature that political scientists have been writing about authoritarian regimes, especially Leninist ones, and they often use the Khrushchev era as a very fruitful area for theorizing about this kind of thing. They essentially say that these politics are about exchange. Either I have a popular policy, therefore you support me, or I give you some perks. That there is, and you'll have to forgive me, I know you're a historian, but the word that they use is that there is a selectorate within the leadership. And what they mean by that is essentially there is an enfranchised group and the canvassing, the politicking, you know, the search for a median voter, so to speak, happens within that uh, defined group. And then finally, there's a view that Leninist regimes, uh, when it comes to civil military relations, uh, there is a real, real, real strong um, tradition of civilian dominance in the military not playing an especially uh, big, big role. So if you if you take those political science hypotheses and you look at the case of Beria, you could come up with a set of things that you would expect to see, right? You would expect to see real policy differences between Beria uh, and uh, his opponents. You, you would see Beria really ignoring the need to co-op people. You would see sort of op- somewhat open uh, um, uh, discussions within the leadership about who the right person should be and people, you know, revealing their preferences. And, and, and finally, you wouldn't see like a big role for the, for the specialists in violence, but essentially you don't, you don't see any of those things really. And I should, I I should say that, I mean, I'm not familiar with the literature as you, but what I reading between the lines, looking at the footnotes, people have claimed all those things about the barrier episode. That you know they they have stuck to that hypothesis, um, but you're arguing really that's to actually be pushing history into a sort of like a pasta mold into which it really doesn't belong. So the case of Beria very famously, very often is uh, seen as having been the result of a policy difference over East Germany, right? Right. And here, Could you explain that? People, Could you, could that yeah. That, that, so. Right, right. So the idea was that there was this meeting and Beria basically said, I don't care about communism in East Germany. It's stupid that 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 that, that we're debating this. And a lot of people looking at um, the memoir literature essentially said, well, um, yeah, this is clear that they decided that Beria wasn't a real communist and this is why he needed to go. And that was sort of the trigger. This was during uh, the, the Berlin riots him. of 53, yeah, following Stalin's death, there's the growing disturbances, and finally the East Berlin began to riot. Um, exactly, it's really one exactly. of the forgotten hot points of the of the Cold War. And this is really a crucial issue too, from a political science theoretical perspective, because um, there is this idea very prominent among political scientists called audience costs. Now, what does this jargon mean? Well, essentially, audience costs means that even in authoritarian regimes, if you have a pop, if you have an unpopular policy towards the outside world, or you're seen as incompetent in your manage and how you manage uh, foreign relations, that there is a trigger mechanism that you're punished for that and you're removed, right? But what we see from the research by people like Mark Kramer or a very, very uh, um, good uh, Russian historian named Filatov, who actually looked at the archives, right, to contextualize all of these memoir accounts who all have reasons to actually portray this as being more principled and policy-oriented um, you know, than what was actually, you know, uh, so personal, uh, that there wasn't really any fundamental difference between uh, the, um, the foreign ministry uh, and the rest of the leadership uh, in Beria uh, on this question. And we have, and this also is a piece of evidence that needs to be taken um, contextually, but it, it's a sort of a secondary uh, thread confirming this view of things where Beria writes a letter from jail, essentially, 
where he says, you know, we had tactical differences on Germany, but to portray them as these fundamental, you know, differences of line is is inappropriate. And that's something that the whole book goes back to over and over and over again, which is you have either these very small tactical differences or sometimes no differences at all. And then it's useful for uh, the opponent to sort of supersize it, right? And turn it into a weapon that they can use to hurt uh, the person that they're going after. So just to repeat this, when you look at the actual events happening in context or sources closer to the moment, you see tactical rather than these sort of then strategic differences or, 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 or immense differences that later memoirs made out. You see people, Barry might be differing on the policy towards the riots in East, East Berlin, but for crying out loud, he is not renouncing uh, the, the world communist movement. You know, what's so interesting and somewhat surprising in terms of the evidence that I present throughout the whole book, both in the Soviet Union and China, is how often we see cases where there are very narrow differences in tactics or sometimes no real differences at all. And then an opponent will supersize it and pretend that it's an issue of a line struggle, right? That this is um, a left-right fundamental contradiction and use that as a weapon against their opponent. And sometimes actually they choose the side that might not even necessarily be the more popular one, but but what's more useful is just creating this cleavage, right? That they can then use. Mm -hmm. Uh, And part of that I think is also because as the book shows, so many of these contests uh, are not about policy differences, but more personal issues that are harder to talk about when justifying what you're doing to the rest of the party, that it's useful to talk about these as, as, as factional contests, right? And in fact, one of the reasons I think books like the one I wrote need to be written is because so often outside observers look at memoirs, which, which tend to, as I said, especially for this interesting case of policy in East Germany, emphasizing these policy differences, but also when these contests are resolved, invariably the winner portrays this as having been a case of line struggle or a case of competing factions with different platforms uh, to, to sort of justify what was usually something else, right? Which is why uh, so many people tend to still see um, you know, Chinese history and Soviet history as these, these regular contests between competing platforms that are actually you know, concrete and, and clearly defined, but the evidence shows that it's, it's, that's not the case traditionally in these types of systems. It's very hard for intellectual historians to accept <laughs> I mean, this is, that these ideas don't matter quite as much as we might think. Um, well, it's not to say that ideas don't matter, right? Because they're still choosing ideas as as the cleavage to fight over. They and I think matter that, in different ways. Yes. Or it, or it matters that they, they think about the world in certain ways. But in terms of specifically about power struggles, real policy differences tend not to be the divide on these questions. Well, also, let's address that the question of the military, because the idea would then would be that the military is relatively uninvolved. But as you just said in the anecdote, I mean, several generals come in. It's a, a future marshal of the Soviet Union, no doubt for his good, uh, made for his good service. I, I looked it up and he was made marshal in 67, the guy who actually personally executed um, uh, a barrier. Um, so the military is intimately involved with this. And as we'll see, the intim- in all these struggles, the military has a very important involvement. Um I guess one reason the military would be de-emphasized, certainly in the accounts, the memoirs of Leninists, is because of the Marxist-Leninist obsession with Bonapartism and fear of a, of a, a third 18th Brumaire um, that would happen within a Leninist uh, society. But um, other Absolutely. than that, that I guess that, that phobia means that you have to then sort of sort of uh, whitewash the, uh, the the presence of the military at these moments of inflection and, and change in the regime. You know, what's so interesting about the military too is that these power struggles are knife fights, but they're knife fights with weird rules. And <laughs> we're not seeing Zhukov walk into the Presidium meeting and declaring a new military leader over the entire party, right? Mm-hmm. And in fact, Zhukov was invited in by a group within the party leadership. So then the question becomes, well, why does the military part of the story if uh, you know politics have to be part of explaining what's going on? And the answer to that is uh, it was the order to do 
what they did, this arrest, was pretty ambiguous in terms of the legitimacy, right? So the, the, the military had some sort of leeway to decide whom was the right person that they should that they should listen to, right? So this, what I'm trying to say is that the military is, has to sort of be invited into politics, it's sort of like a vampire, right? They can't just walk mm-hmm. in through the front door unless, unless they're invited in. Uh, but then also that the military themselves still have when that in that sort of ambiguous institutional environment, some agency uh, to determine uh, how they're going to behave as, as the, uh, as the events transpire. So what does this say about the strength of Leninist institutions? Let's let's say just in 1953. So what's interesting is that so many people within the leadership in both the Soviet Union and China after the deaths of Stalin and Mao, like if you want to talk about a moment when it was most clear that strongman leadership was disastrous, it was precisely at that time, right? So we see mm-hmm. at that meeting where the old generation re- rejoins the leadership and the middle generation basically take control that they're, what, as they describe it, the absolute top priority is stability and avoiding factionalism because they were afraid that um, the whole system would split, right? If, if, uh, if these types of things uh, got too out of control, but even though there was that sense precisely because those institutions were so weak, it allowed for the possibility of an individual like a Khrushchev or a Deng to irrigate that power and uh, prevent a, a real establishment of inter-party democracy or collective leadership. So rather than the institutions reverting or sort of stabilizing at some norm of collective leadership, we go back to, within a few years, a strongman. So in 1957, uh, which is the second Soviet case, generally that had been seen as this contest between Khrushchev the reformer and Molotov and the rest of the Stalinists. But the evidence unambiguously shows that this was about preventing Khrushchev from becoming another strongman leader Uh and that the policy differences between Khrushchev and the other individuals in previous accounts had been woefully uh, overstated. And that, again, the military came to support Khrushchev. If, if the decision had been made within the presidium, Khrushchev would have lost. But he played for time, and Central Committee members were literally brought to Moscow by the military, at which at which uh, there's mostly a discussion about how uh, the individuals who were going after Khrushchev had been bloodied and, and um, made themselves illegitimate because of the crimes that he had committed um, during the Stalin era. So it begins with Zhukov, who had the prestige of having defeated the Nazis, uh, holding the uh, both op- operational control over the military, but also, and this is how he started his speech at that plenum, with all the compromising material about what Molotov and Kakanovich and others had done um, mm-hmm. during the worst successes of the Stalin era. So it wasn't about policy. It was about maneuvering and that, um, and uh, the threatened use of force and uh, and and references to the past. So let's uh, do a Chinese case, um, and the one that that you suggest is we do is the the how should we say it? I want to say that the purging of Hua Guofeng. Um, and you know, this is going to take a little bit of uh, explanation. People might have seen Death of Stalin, but there hasn't been like you know there hasn't been a Death of Mao yet. Uh, there hasn't been like the a purging of Hua and, and given Hollywood's uh, relationship with China, we ain't likely to see it for some time. Uh, so you have to sketch it out in a little bit more detail for us. Yeah. So very often when you read newspaper articles about China today, invariably you will see a reference to something called the Third Plenum in 1978 when Deng Xiaoping emerged out of a power struggle against Mao's initial successor, Hua Guofeng, uh, and started the reformant opening, and that over the 1980s, Deng Xiaoping was this wonderful institutionalizer who created post-Mao guardrails to affirm collective leadership, and that mm-hmm. uh, Xi Jinping is now moving away from that model, right? So people used to think that Hua Guofeng, who Mao picked to be the next leader, was basically a light Mao, right? Who mm-hmm. wanted to continue with the cultural revolution, didn't want to rehabilitate the old revolutionaries, didn't want to reform the economy, uh, was obsessed with ideological propriety. But 
all of that based on the new evidence that's become available uh, is is wrong. And that essentially Deng's triumph over Hua wasn't this system of inter-party democracy uh, or, or a real debate about reform or not reform. But once again, just as in the same case as the Soviet Union, uh, was shaped by questions of legacy and prestige and compromising material. And once again, was fought not so much through an open discussion, but by maneuver and uh, uh, sort of dirty games, and again, by relying or, or threatening to use um, the military, in this case, the People's Liberation in, Army. In which case, and, and that's where Deng's position as chairman of the Central Military Commission, right? That's where, because that, that was his only title, I believe. Uh, well, actually, his... no. So in the, in, the, in the years immediately after Mao's death, uh, Hua Guofeng was still head of the Central Military Commission. Was, okay. uh, Deng was just chief of the general staff, right? Which makes it so interesting that the that Deng was able to use the military in the way that he did. And here it's not in the operational sense, uh, like it was used in other cases in the book, but it's a sort of way of demonstrating that the military listens to you, right? Mm-hmm. Not arresting Hua or anything like that. But but and also Deng seems to have decided that he needed to become more aggressive uh, about pushing Hua out, precisely when Hua was head of the Central Military Commission, uh, was starting to express interest in the PLA, who Deng, who is, you know, chief of the general staff, was much lower on the totem pole, saw as an infringement on his bailiwick, but also colored by the fact that Deng understood that in this system, uh, control over the, over, the, over the military was was the decisive element in, in any particular power struggle. And he had seen how you know, the military had played a role in the beginning of the Cultural Revolution and, and supporting Mao, and uh, uh, he definitely didn't want to happen that something like that to happen again. So you, um, so then, how should we think then about um, Deng um, as uh, so Deng, rather than trying to creating this guardrails and consensus, actually is a sense of making himself is making himself a paramount leader. In That's correct. Words, you're, saying, this is, you're saying this has happened before. This is not G. This is not G. Has not like reinvented this. This is actually something that's happened before, and that in many ways, then sort of the late '90s and early aughts. That's the ex- exception to the pattern that we've seen since Mao rose to the head of the Communist Party. We know very little about the '90s and the aughts, yeah, right? right? But what we do know about the 1980s is that the story of Deng as an institutionalizer just is, is wrong. And so, for example, uh, Chun Yun, who is a very important figure as the second most senior figure within the leadership, uh, precisely because of you know the views of what he had contributed to the revolution and uh, the stature that he had reached in the early years of the PRC, uh, he's very often seen as someone who could uh, constrain Deng. But in fact, Chun couldn't do that and one example that shows what I mean is Chun Yun went to Zhao Ziyang, who was the general secretary of the party, and said, uh, I want to hold a meeting. Uh, and Zhao Ziyang said, well, I can't call a meeting. You have to go see Deng. I'm just a big secretary. Uh, and then Chun Yun sort of wandered off muttering, oh, big secretary, big secretary. Uh, <laughs> Deng said, Deng, Deng told uh, um, Chun Yun that the party could only have one mother-in-law, Right. Uh, and he said to Jiang Zemin, you know, when I was in charge, what I said goes, and I'm not going to re- I'm not going to relax until what you say goes. And he would he would he would explicitly say that the reason our system is better than other systems is because we have this core, we have this top leader who can make decisions. And he interestingly actually referred uh, Deng did to the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan as uh, something that showed that that communist systems are better because they can be so decisive, even though, you know, the war in Afghanistan was so obviously a disaster for the Soviet Union. Or you would say things like, you know, when you deal with the Americans, you don't know uh, who actually gets to make decisions because there are three governments there. Right. And so, and so, yeah. And, uh, and so Dong, as I, as I show in the, um, uh, in the book, uh, he was someone who really uh, cared about power, irrigated power, had an authoritarian um, personality, and didn't really care about going through, about, about following the rules when he when he decided that somebody needed to go. Speaking of Afghanistan, I was very, I'm very struck by you. A, a short, I, I suspect it could be an entire book on Deng's. It was really his decision to invade Vietnam, which was 
in some ways, as disastrous as the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan, just the disaster happened in a very short period. Um, and, and that's still relatively, I mean, I, I suspect we'll be waiting for some decades to really get the paper on that. But it'll be fascinating when finally we are able to look at the archives. Yeah, the war in Vietnam is a really especially interesting case. So in the I... I conducted interviews with party historians in Beijing. Uh, I have some material that's only in, intended for internal circulation, and I try to use the work of some of some party historians writing outside uh, of censorship, as well as some sort of um, uh, rare publications uh, related to people um, who were involved. So I can't give you the definitive story of what happened. I can just give you three hypotheses. Mm-hmm. Uh, one is that Deng fought the war. Um, precisely because he wanted to show that the PLA only listened to him. Uh, One possibility is that he thought the war needed to be fought and it just happened to contribute to his prestige uh, within the party because it showed that the military only listened to him or it was some mixture of the two. But what we do have, you know, pretty good confidence to say is that Deng was one of the only people within the elite who thought that it was a good idea. Uh, That Chun Yun, this man I just mentioned before, who almost invariably would oppose something like that because of his obsession with not, you know, spending too much money, um, helped Dong to do it, and that uh, uh, the 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 decision was made precisely around the same time as the work conference before the third plenum and the third plenum, which was this really crucial moment in the shifting forces of Dong Xiaoping and, and Hua Guofeng. But also what's really interesting too, you know, you're talking about audience costs before, which is as you said, you know, the war was a disaster and was fought terribly, but it didn't really have anything to do with, with Deng's um, continued ascension to the top uh, uh, of the leadership. So it, it didn't help him, but it didn't hurt him. Well, it helped him in the sense that it showed the PLA only listened to him uh, yeah. when, when the decision was made, but then when the decision didn't go so well, it didn't hurt him, right? So he could sort yeah. of firewall himself from that, which is a sort of interesting way of thinking about politics, right? It's not intuitive. No. Um, Let's uh, step back a little bit. Um, you use something called uh, a technique here called episode analysis. Uh, what is that? So a lot of political scientists who look at authoritarian regimes, they tend to look at cross-case variation, which means that they try to rule out um, certain causes by looking at uh, several different similar events. Uh, or they look for uh, an average causal effect, some statistical relationship by looking at a whole lot of cases. Uh, or they try to think more conceptually by using game theory, and they think about how a decision would be made given a set of mathematical parameters. And the conclusions that that kind of research created were precisely the arguments that I've been talking about um, in our conversation about institutions actually mattering and so on. But there are some... Uh, political scientists uh, who do episode analysis, um, historical institutionalism, and they say, well, what we should really do is really dig deep into specific cases and figure out who the actors were, what their power was, uh, what they wanted, and how the uh, and how the um, situation was ultimately resolved, right? And I think there's different advantages to these these approaches, but with this episode analysis, I think there's a real strength there to um, allowing you to conceptualize, you know, what these forces were. And if you do that in enough cases, you may not be able to have a statistical correlation, but you get a, good, a sort of general sense for how these types of uh, polities work. Why these regimes? Um, I, I, I like to go back to almost, let's go back to sort of the theoretical sort of implications for this. Um, which you lay out in the introduction. So we're actually at the end of the conversation, we're going back to the beginning of the book. Um, sure. What are the, aren't these just extraordinary and bizarre circumstances? I mean, Stalin and Mao, two out of three of the most violent and unusual dictators of the 20th century uh, with very freaky polities, it would seem. Uh, so What? I mean, this is important for the history. Don't get me wrong. This extraordinary important history, but surely there couldn't be implications from this. Surely this is like studying a unicorn and saying, oh, let's, let's find out about the rest of the ruminants. 
Sure. Uh, you're sounding like a uh, political scientist. You're asking me yeah. about case selection and uh, generalizability. Yeah, well, I so, I, I, yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> no, no, it's uh, I no, talk bilingual sometimes. No, so no, but but it's it's a fully legitimate question. Why, first of all, why these cases, and second of all, what what do they tell us about today? Well, why these cases? Uh, I'll begin with the first is these are extraordinarily crucial moments in the history of the 20th centuries to most important communist states, right? So as a historian, I think it makes oh, sense to figure out what happened and they're important they're, moments, right? Yeah. In terms of, you know, getting a sense for the trajectory of, of, of these countries, right? Uh, the second is that political scientists use the Khrushchev era and the Dong era heavily to theorize about the nature of Leninist institutions. So it makes sense to go back and see whether or not the evidence actually supports the kind of theoretical ideas that they're getting from looking at um, the secondary sources primarily because they're political scientists. The other is that, you know, I'm talking about why institutions are weak, but as I was saying before, these are moments when institutions should have been at their strongest uh, because it was at the moments when the lessons of, of strongman leadership uh, were, were at their most, um, uh, were at their most obvious, but then also because uh, it's actually a really, really exciting moment to be doing research on Russia and China in terms of sources, right? Mm -hmm. So the Russian archives, uh, up until at least the war in Ukraine, it was amazing how open they were and the types of things uh, that you could get even through the early 1970s. And in terms of China, uh, it's certainly getting harder. Uh, but if you're clever and you're diligent, the amount of stuff that can now be done based on sources that are out there and what has been done, that gap really is enormous. And then finally, what does it teach us about today? Well, China still is a Leninist system, right? And when you read the paper, people always contextualize Xi Jinping by talking about Mao, talking about Deng, talking about Zhang, talking about who. So getting a sense of, of, of the past is one of the few things um, that we have. And we know from looking at the past that people from the outside looking in, even people within these elites get it wrong all the time. Right. So by having a general sense of how these things worked in the past, it allows us to contextualize the information we get sort of by trying to drink a milkshake from a straw when we're looking at, you know, what's going on today. You sort of understand it uh, differently based on where you feel that fits in the, in the broader trajectory of how these states have changed. So, for example, there was a debate about whether or not Xi Jinping was going to, you know, um, pursue a third term, um, arrogate as much power uh, as he did. Uh, and I had written a piece uh, in uh, a blog called War on the Rock saying that, well, uh, people always said that Dong uh, was an institutionalizer, but he wasn't. And it was precisely because of just how leader friendly these systems are, suggesting that if Xi Jinping wanted to do something like that, it would be possible. And then sure enough, yeah. he did. That's a, that's a really nice point. Um, that I was really struck when talking with Tony Sage last year, and I'll put a link to this in the show notes, about the uh, the Southern tour of or the early 90s that Dung took, um, which is just a kind of a weird thing. It, but he just basically took a trip to the South. He was worried supposedly about the progress of economic development in the South, that it might be suppressed by people in Beijing. So he just took a, a vacation. Now, no, that's, uh, that's a really important moment because, you know, people talk about Xi Jinping as being stronger than Dung, but really... For Deng to do the crackdown in Tiananmen Square when most of the leadership didn't want that to happen. And then in 1992, when he had no formal positions at all, he just had his prestige as a revolutionary and a close personal, although not formal, relationship with the military, he could completely change the course of, of the policies coming out just of, of Beijing. By, Xi Jinping has never faced a stress test like that. No, just by taking this vacation, quote unquote, and just by having it appear in the papers, at least the story is, is that it, people in Beijing were aware of it when they saw it in the papers from Southern China. Now, to me, that doesn't indicate institutional strength. Exactly. So the story of Deng as being this great institutionalizer really needs to be re reviewed. Exactly. Yeah. And so uh, you, we, you said before we began recording that this says... Um, that people have been want to talk more about the death of Stalin and the and the execution of Beria than Xi Jinping. So let's talk about Xi Jinping. Uh, you've, sure. We've already talked a little bit about it, but just can you draw? Uh, I, we should also talk about North Korea, which you talk about in the in the conclusion. Uh, maybe we should talk about Kim, Kim Jong Un first. 
Um, what does the then the theory? What's the Terigian way of Terigian hypotheses? What do they say about the sort of the way that power succeeded into this increasingly bizarre and strange North Korean regime? Is it so bizarre and strange? That, that's so. We know that the North Koreans were always intensely interested in the, in the succession politics that were going on within China. And what they saw was Mao losing faith in several different deputies who he had said were ultimately likely to become uh, his, his successor. And then we saw uh, the successor that Mao had picked, Hua Guofeng, also getting pushed out. So in the North Korean case, if you are the top leader, you're going to draw certain conclusions. And one of the conclusions that they apparently drew was it's still your family that's the most reliable person uh, to, to, um, uh, to look at, right? And so what the North Koreans did was I, they, they sort of created a syncretic, syncretic uh, combination of revolution, communism, and the Kim family as something that was all one big uh, legitimating source for the regime and uh, made that what the succession was all about, essentially. Uh, so here again, uh, you know, the, so, so I'll, I'll stop there. Yeah. So, but you're, you're suggesting, you suggest in the conclusion that this is it's not crazy to imagine that Mao might have not might have might have even thought of the same thing that he might so have I been tempted to do the same thing. Well, I think this is really important, actually. So, uh, one of Mao's sons was killed uh, in North Korea, uh, and his nephew uh, Mao Yuanxin, who was very prominent at the end of the Cultural Revolution as a sort of messenger for Mao Zedong. Uh, if he had been a little bit older and Mao had had a little bit more time to uh, empower him, or uh, if Jiang Qing had been a little bit more effective um, as a leader, and more importantly, hadn't been sullied by her associating with the cultural, cultural revolution, uh, any one of those figures, I think, might have been a very tempting choice for Mao, especially as he continued to see over and over and over again uh, problems with people that... Uh, were just his comrades in arms and weren't related to him by blood. And, you know, we have this, in addition to the sort of the cult of the Kim family, we've also got this strange sort of aristocracy based on one's relation to the Manchuria, the revolutionaries gathered around Kim, Kim Il-sung in Manchuria, correct? Um, and that that's sort of the, that's the sort of the, the high elite. And I guess your lower elite, depending on your relationship to that period. Yeah, so there was a case in the 1950s when a group uh, within the North Korean leadership who had been members of the Communist Party in the Soviet Union or had worked with um, the Chinese Communist Party uh, outside of Manchuria uh, and, then, and then Koreans who had worked in the underground um, during the Japanese occupation, those three groups were concerned about uh, Kim Il-sung's irrigation of power. Right. Mm -hmm. And they were concerned partly about how he was talking about the revolution as basically only uh, have been uh, based on Kim's own brilliance and what and what him and his group of of catters in, in Manchuria had been doing before they were forced to flee into the Soviet Union. And essentially, the Chinese and the Soviets sent a delegation, a joint delegation to Pyongyang to try to prevent this uh, irrigation of power in the hands of Kim Il-sung, but uh, Kim Il-sung ultimately was still able to to achieve the purges that um, that he wanted, and, and it shows that uh, you know the politics here again were about who contributed the most to uh, these uh, uh, to the fighting, you know, before the regime was established, who put the most into the regime afterwards, who deserved the most uh, credit for what. And Kim really drawing upon these these sociological ties that were forged, you know, in the war uh, against the Japanese as as the most trustworthy thing that that he could use both to defeat those opponents and then you know to rely upon their trust when he was establishing um, the succession in the hands of his son. So, am I wrong then when I hear that Xi Jinping referred to as sort of a red prince? And so then aware that there's this class of so-called red princelings, am I wrong to say, wait a second, that sounds a lot like 
North Korea, which is supposed to be weird and exceptional and different. But here I've got some sort of incipient Leninist aristocracy uh, or yeah. beyond incipient going on in, in, in China. Well, we could certainly talk about uh, the princelings for a whole other hour. But yeah, sure. what's interesting about them is that, you know, during the 1950s and 1960s, uh, the princelings or the, the offspring of high-ranking catters, as they were referred to at the time, they were a very, very, very sensitive political topic. And in fact, Mao called them a disaster, right? And the issue here was that these, these children saw themselves as the inheritors uh, to the revolution, but that had, as you were saying, sort of very obvious contradictions with how Leninists think about politics. And so at the beginning of the Cultural Revolution, uh, you see actually the most prominent Red Guards, the most the most violent Red Guards are actually precisely these children of, of high-ranking revolutionaries. Then when they realize that the Cultural Revolution is, is going after their own parents, they're quickly disillusioned. Many of them are then sent to the countryside where they see just how terrible things were and how disastrous the Cultural Revolution was. Then during the 1980s, they try to make up for lost time by making money. Uh, others decide that they want to go uh, into, into government, but they're very unpopular. And we have this very interesting transcript from a meeting where uh, with the organization department, because there had been a debate about whether there should be a special document managing their affairs. And they're like, I wish I wasn't, you know, the, the kid of a high ranking revolutionary because everybody looks down on me. There's a double standard. But then at the same time, they did get all these benefits, right, to the being who they were. Uh, you know, what their benefit, what they were, their um, corruption and their perks had been one of the reasons for the protests uh, in Tiananmen Square. Uh, Xi Jinping's own career was hurt during the 1990s because of his, the view of the, him as a princeling. So being the offspring of one of these leaders really helped you in some cases and really hurt you in others. So they have this sort of... Um, you know, um, prickly perspective about how they think about their history. Uh, and Xi Jinping himself, I think, has always had a complicated relationship with the other princelings, right? Uh, one is because his father was purged much earlier than um, the other leaders. So his father was purged in 1962, but most of the other leaders were purged at the beginning of the Cultural Revolution uh, four or five years later. Um, Xi Jinping um, applied to get into the party many, 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 many times when he was his when he was a Sun youth, exiled to the countryside. He couldn't get in because of his father's status. So he's joked with people to say that he wasn't really a princeling, you know, like the other ones. But but also he is he has very clearly differentiated himself on multiple cases from those from those princelings in the eighties uh, and nineties who wanted to make up for lost time because of what they had lost during the Cultural Revolution by making money and having fun and leaving, living a hedonistic life. And he has said no. I, you know, um, got a job in the grassroots, even though I had a cushy position uh, in Beijing. Uh, I wanted to rededicate my life to preventing another cultural revolution from happening. I really only saw a purpose and value uh, in, in, in politics, right? Mm -hmm. So I think that uh, you know, we can't talk about them as a single defined group. And Xi Jinping has his own sort of complicated attitude about his past. Um, but you're right, it's, um, it is a very interesting uh, story uh, in terms of um, succession politics. So I guess the, the takeaway then uh, is that when in this autumn, when Xi Jinping becomes basically whatever you call leader for life, um, this is not a break from a pattern. This is a continuation of the pattern. And, uh, and he's drawing upon um, certain uh, he's behaving in certain recognizable ways that have, that have been gone on for multiple periods in uh, other Leninist regimes. Absolutely. And I would say one piece of context, which is that the interesting thing about Deng is that even though he was the paramount leader after the death of Mao, he was never the formal leader of the party. He was never the general, he was never the general secretary. And I think a lot of the pathologies of the Deng era were a result of that, right? Where Deng didn't want to seem like a strongman leader like Mao because of these memories as we've talked about, but he also was very jealous of his power. So we saw Hu Yaobang thinking he had more space than he really did and getting removed for it. Zhao Ziyang thinking he had sure. more space than he did and getting removed uh, from it. So Xi Jinping is interesting because he's both the paramount leader of the party, but also the formal leader of the party. And you could argue that maybe one of the reasons for that behavior is he saw what had happened during the Deng era, where there was a, where was that separation 
So he cares about that formal power. But also, I think Deng, as a revolutionary, had cachet and natural authority that Xi Jinping lacks, which also might help explain why uh, his status as the core is so constantly affirmed, his formal authority is so constantly affirmed, um, precisely because he doesn't, he can't talk about his role in the Huai Hai campaign right. against the KMT. Why he has he to go through these kind of history? Yeah, he has to go through these sometimes almost laughable attempts to show himself as you know Xi Jinping thought or the 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 military the military parades and all the rest of that sort of stuff because he, he has to make up for that. But at the same time, even though he doesn't have what Deng had, he still lives in a system that's very very leader friendly, right? Mm-hmm. So some outside observers have hoped that there could be an elite revolt and because of policy failure policy differences some coalition within the selectorate could rally and hold an emergency central committee upon them and one of the things that they point to is this work conference in 1978 right but as i've been talking to you that understanding of what happened at the work conference is wrong and it wasn't this elite revolt based on policy and 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 so on so um this the the story of Xi Jinping and, and how long he'll stay in office, I think, um, is hard to say because succession politics are inherently contingent. Um, and as I said, it's really, really, really hard for people on the outside to know what's going on as it's transpiring. But uh, he has a lot of tools in his Machiavellian toolbox. My guest today has been Joseph Turijan, author of Prestige, Manipulation, and Coercion, Elite Power Struggles in the Soviet Union and China After Stalin and Mao published by Yale University Press. Joseph, thank you so much for being part of Historically Thinking. Thanks for having me. I really enjoyed this. Just a brief reminder, if you're listening to Historically Thinking on the website, that's great. But for your convenience, you can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Pandora, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, GeoSavin, Podchaser, TuneIn, Deezer, and there are more. In fact, wherever there are podcasts, there you can find Historically Thinking. While great reviews are wonderful on whatever platform you want to write them, the best possible review that you can give us is to forward the podcast to a friend you think will find it interesting. You can also follow us on Twitter at hist underscore think or on Facebook.